Let's pray. Father, there is no one else who is worthy of our praise, who is worthy of our lives, our adoration of our everything besides you. And so, Father, in a, in a world that's constantly demanding our worship, I pray that you would help us to see afresh and anew this morning that our worship should only go in one direction, and that is to you. Because as we orient our lives around you, and as our lives circle around you and and, and the worship of you, then everything else in our life will begin to make sense. Because the, the good gifts that you have given us are not made for our worship. They are made for our enjoyment. You and you alone are made for our worship. And so, Father, this morning as we gather back around your word once again, and as we see your clear direction and instruction for our life, I pray that as we hear it and as we feel the weight of it, and as we hear the call to servanthood, that we would admit our inability to to do what you're calling us to do, while at the same time, we cry out to you and say, Father, with, with me, this is impossible. But with you, this is possible. And that we would turn to you in and, 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 and fresh surrender this morning. Knowing that the life that you have called us to live cannot be lived out through natural means, but only through supernatural help. So help us this morning, in Christ's name I pray, amen. You may be seated. If you will, take your Bible and meet me this morning in Mark's Gospel. Mark's Gospel, it's where we've been for some time now. Mark chapter 9, verse 30 through 37. So, I'm going to do this week much like I did last week. I'm not going to read the text up front. We're just going to take and we're just going to walk verse by verse by verse through this section of Scripture. Eight verses. Just going to walk through them, see what the Scripture is telling us, and then pleading with God's help. that we may be able to leave this place today resolved with His help to live this out. I've entitled this morning's sermon, The Goat on Being Great. The Goat on Being Great. Uh, the Goat. It's a recent addition to our mainstream vernacular. It was first introduced to us by none other than Muhammad Ali the great boxer of the 1960s and 70s and early 80s. According to Wikipedia, it is a term used to describe, you know, it's always cool to 
uh, go looking for something, um, not knowing that you'll find exactly what you're looking for. But in this case, um, I was blown away at the language that Wikipedia uses. So listen to this definition very closely, okay? It is a term used to describe the ultimate incarnation of anything. Now, y'all know that's a Bible word, right? Incarnation. That's, incarnation is what we talk about at Christmas time when God takes on flesh, incarnate, car, carnate being flesh, in the flesh. It is when the ultimate. It is used to describe ultimate incarnation of anything from an athlete to an automobile. Now, many Christians might believe that the pursuit of greatness has no place in Christian culture. And yet, what we're about to read in the pages of Scripture this morning teaches us something entirely different. In our text, Jesus does not repudiate greatness. He just redefines it. Jesus does not come to squash our pursuit of greatness, but He comes to satisfy it with the greatness that comes from God. Let's look at verse 35 to start with, okay? Because I want you to see what I said. I didn't make it up. Now, this is Jesus. We're, we're kind of at the end of uh, this section of verses. But he, look what He says. And He sat down and He called the twelve and He said to them... If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So Jesus is not trying to squash the pursuit of greatness. Jesus is only trying to satisfy the pursuit of greatness. Jesus doesn't say, don't pursue greatness. Jesus says, make sure you pursue it in the right way. Why? Because this, this hunger and desire to pursue greatness in our life, and we all have it, it comes from God. It's something that was, it was a desire that was put in us as being made as creatures in the image of God. But listen to me. Do you know that sin does not create any desires in us? Sin only takes the desires that God has put in us and sin takes those desires and turns them on their head. So these desires that we have in our life, desires for relationship, what does sin do? Sin, sin comes in and it, it tries to redefine those desires. Uh, God made us, gave us a desire to work. But what does is, what is sin do? Sin comes in and it, and it turns that desire on its head. You see, God has put w within us good desires, but what sin does is that sin comes in and it twists those desires and it turns those desires away from what God intended them to be into exactly what God never wanted them to be. You see, Jesus does not rebuke their desire to be great. He just reorients it. 
We are hardwired to be great, but our system has a virus in it which causes us to malfunction, this desire to malfunction. Remember, discipleship is a reorienting of our mind. It's, it's a renewing of our worldview. Why? Because sin has messed everything up. Sin has found its way into every nook and cranny of our life. Sin has found its way inside of every desire within our life, and it has short-circuited it. It has rewired it. It has turned it uh, into the wrong direction. In Mark 8, Jesus' ministry shifted from a crowd-centered ministry into a core-centered ministry. His finish line is inside and Yet there is much that remains unfinished with his disciples. Jesus is closing up shop. He's he's coming down to the end of his life. Remember, he even said a couple of weeks ago that that I'm not going to be with you guys much longer. And so Jesus is in this final mode where he looks around at the crowd and he says, you know what, the crowd no longer is important. Why? It's this core group of of, of disciples that I brought together, these are the people that I'm going to spend the remainder of my days laser focused on. Why? Because these are going to be the individuals that will minister to the crowd. And so Jesus has to make sure that, that they get what is important. They, they need to understand the very basic foundational truths of Christianity. Why? Because the whole movement called Christianity, is going to be put into their hands. It is going to be laid on their backs. They are going to be responsible for taking the gospel into the whole world. Matter of fact, the Bible that we have in our hands this morning is is here because of these individuals. And so it it is important that, that they get what is important to Jesus. It's important that they understand what it really means to be a disciple of His. Jesus wants His disciples to be great. And who better to learn from than the original and only true goat? Jesus is the greatest of all time. And if, and if Jesus says, you should desire to be great, who better to learn what greatness looks like than from the greatest of all time? You should, you should write this down. This is important. Like, if you're trying to figure out what is Jesus saying in these eight verses, this is exactly what he's saying. This is that 2 a.m. summation. If, if you see somebody today and they say, hey, what'd your preacher preach about today? This is it. Greatness is not defined by your accomplishment, but who you serve. Greatness is not defined by your accomplishment, but who you serve. I told the uh, life group this morning, it was interesting that our, 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 our study through the spiritual disciplines brought us to serving this morning. And, 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 and I told the, the group that met this morning, you're never more like Jesus than when you serve somebody in His name. You're never more like Jesus than when you serve somebody in His name. So greatness is not defined by your accomplishment, but by who you serve. Now let's just walk through the text. Look back at verse 30. It says, They went on from there and passed through Galilee, 
And he did not want anyone to know. Now, remember last week, they had uh, encountered this young boy that was possessed of a demon, and yet the disciples couldn't cast him out. And the whole message was not about demon possession and is there a ministry of demon, you know, of casting out demons? The whole point of the message last week was on faith, right? Having faith in God. Why? Because Jesus said that this only comes out by prayer. Jesus told him that, ask him again, why is your faith so weak? Why can't you be like this father who said, Lord, I believe, yet help my unbelief. And when Jesus said that this only comes out by prayer, what was he saying to them? Is that, guys, you have left the, the, the most basic fundamental expression of faith, which is prayer. There's, there's no greater expression of faith than to pray. And so they have left that scene and they are moving on. What, which is interesting because in this one text, that we're reading today is that we see how Jesus teaches us to make disciples. Uh, if you remember all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter six, uh, the, 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 the people of God are told by Moses that the way that you make disciples is that you talk about the word of God when you come in, when you go out, when you're sitting down, when you're standing up. Matter of fact, what, what, what God was saying to his people is, the way you make disciples is as you are living your everyday life, you're always talking about me. Why? Because everything in life is always about me. And so here we have them moving. They're, they're walking as they're going along. And it says, it's, it's interesting because it says they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know. Those two phrases, pass through and did not want anyone to know, those just simply remind us that Jesus is focused primarily on his core group of disciples, not on the crowd. Why? Because his ministry to the crowd is pretty much over with. It's done. He's in, he's in last day's mode. Look at verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. The heart of discipleship is found in that phrase, teaching his disciples. His heart is not seen in his passion, but in his perseverance. Jesus is not teaching a new lesson, right? I mean, if you've been here the last several weeks, you know that just a couple of Sundays ago, we saw that Jesus was teaching this very lesson. This is not a new lesson. This was a lesson that he was repeating. And why was he having to repeat this lesson? Because they had yet to understand the lesson. A little sidebar. If you look at that, that verse on the screen or in your Bible or on your phone or ever how you're looking at God's Word this morning, there are some verbs there that are very important. It says, is going, 
will kill, is killed, will rise. Notice Jesus' choice of these verbs in the passage. (laughs) I call them sovereign verbs. You know what those verbs remind me of? That God is in control over every situation, even the worst of them. Love this verse. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Hey, listen to me this morning. If Jesus says, nobody takes my life, I lay it down. I have the authority to lay it down and take it up. Listen. If your life has been entrusted to Christ, what do you have to fear? If he can do that with his own life, what can he do with your life? That's just a sidebar. It's not, it's not really any part of the sermon. Just something I think we need to be reminded of. But something that we need to definitely be reminded of from this verse, verse 31, is that God purposely killed His Son in order that He might not kill us. You need to let that... Like, you need to let that sink in and marinate and soak in your heart. Jesus is saying, I am going to die. The Father, I lay it down, I take it up, right? The the Father and I are in total control of this situation. Isaiah 53 says it pleased the Father to crucify His Son. Jesus is saying this, I mean, they don't, it's veiled. They, they don't even fully understand what he's saying in that, in verse 31. But we who are on this side of the cross look back at those words and we see that Jesus is saying, listen, I am going to be killed by the Father so that you won't be killed. What do you deserve? Hmm? Death. That's what sin deserves. That's what sinners deserve is death. But God is saying to his, 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 his disciples, I must die so that you will not. Back to the sermon. Verse 32. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. They don't understand a lot. Why were they still having trouble understanding Jesus' teaching on death and resurrection? Is Jesus saying something that's too hard? Even though back earlier in chapter 8, the Bible says He said all these things. Do you remember what it said? Plainly, right? So no, it's it's not that it's complicated or hard to understand. And listen, they knew they should understand it. That's why they didn't ask Him about it. Why do you think they were afraid to ask him? Because they know they should know what he's saying. So, where was their struggle? This is what I've been working on all week. Where was their struggle in understanding this whole concept that Jesus is trying to teach them 
about he's got to die and be resurrected. And then I, I found some help this week. And, and so here's the help that I found. And, and this is part of what we struggle with, even as modern day believers, is that there is teachings within the Bible and, and, and um, that, have, that have a paradoxical um, aspect to them that, that creates confusion in a Western mind, in, in an American mindset. And, and here's what I mean by that. We know that God is love, but we also know that God will send unrepentant sinners to hell, right? Amen? You don't, you don't repent of your sin, you go to hell. That's clear teaching of the Bible. But see, in, in America... We can't justify a God who is all who is love and yet can send people to hell at the same time. That's a paradox. We don't really have we, we can't work that out in our mind. The disciples had an Old Testament teaching that really throws them into this paradoxical conflict. Daniel chapter seven says that beginning of verse fourteen says that there's, it's a prophecy, says that there's coming a Messiah who is going to be victorious. He's going to rule and to reign over everything. I mean, you ought to go read it. It, it, is, a, it is an incredible picture. I mean, it's like, the, it's, it's like everything you want to hear uh, about what Jesus is like, that he is going to come in full glory. He's going to rule. He's going to reign. He's going to put evil under his feet. He's going to be above everything. But, so they, so listen, that's kind of the mind, the, the, the mindset that they have about Jesus. But what they fail to do is they cannot justify the other teaching of Jesus that Isaiah gives in Isaiah 53. And that's the, that's the teaching that Jesus is going to suffer. It's, it's often called the suffering servant passage of the Bible. So what they can't reconcile in their mind, the paradox is, how can you be a conquering Messiah and a suffering servant? Now let me ask you a question. Which one would you rather have? Conquering Messiah or suffering servant? Well, guess what? You can't be the conquering Messiah unless you are the suffering servant. But see, they can't, bring, see, they can't reconcile those two together. And that's why they're having problems understanding what Jesus is saying. Then, go on, let's go to verse 32, next verse. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Don't you love it when Jesus asks you what you were doing? Like, I thought you were Jesus. Don't you already know what I was doing? Jesus knows what they're discussing. He just wants them to know that he knows what they were discussing. Listen, church, there's something very important here. When we sin, you know what Jesus wants us to do? He wants us to come into the light. That's what Jesus is doing. He's inviting his disciples into the light. You guys... 
for the last ever how long they had been walking had done nothing but argue about who's going to be the greatest. They had done nothing but just sin and sin and sin. And what Jesus wants them to do is to say, hey, what were you guys discussing so that we can talk about it? Why don't you step over here into, into the light so that we can deal with the evil that's in your heart? And see, Luke tells us that Jesus knew what was in their heart. This is Luke's account of that. He knows the length and the severity of, of their argument. As a matter of fact, when you, when you see that word discussing, uh, uh, it, it lets us know that this was, had been going on for some time. This was a long duration in the original language. But notice that Jesus isn't put out with their foolishness, but perseveres with them in their foolishness. He does not leave them alone but what does he do? He, he, enter, he enters in. Jesus is long-suffering with his disciples, knowing that this moment will not reorient their thinking. Man, when this landed on me this week, I mean, it just, it just blew my mind even more about Jesus. Like, when I try to think about how long-suffering Jesus is, uh, th- this just helped me to, to kind of expand that thought even more. Because, listen... Jesus knows that even engaging them in their sinful way of thinking, He knows that this conversation alone will not fix what's broken in them. He knows that He'll have to have another conversation on down the road. Why? Because, listen, by the time they get to their final meal with Jesus and they're they're ascending into the upper room, to have this final meal, does anybody remember what the conversation was as they entered the room to eat the final meal with Jesus? Who's the greatest? But you know what Jesus doesn't do with slow-learning disciples? He doesn't give up on us. He knows they're not going to get it today. But he's not quitting. He's not giving up. He's not saying enough with you, you you foolish, slow, dumb disciples. He perseveres with them. Why? Because he knows just like that man that Jesus touched twice. Remember the man that was blind that he touched twice? Remember what we said about that? That why did Jesus touch him twice? It was just a reminder to us that we too are slow and dull in seeing Jesus. And what do we need? We need Jesus to touch us over and over and over again. This is just another touch from Jesus. Why? Because he's got to keep touching them so that they can see a little bit more of who he is every time. Verse 34 says this, But they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who's the greatest. You know why they kept silent? Because they knew their conversation was not worthy of being a disciple. The word argue indicates that it took place in a face-to-face manner. Like, they weren't arguing from a distance. I mean, they were like nose-to-nose. That's how you have a good argument, right? I mean, good argument is when you got spit flying and you just, and you, and you're face to face and the other person's wiping it off. And then, you know, I mean, that's, that's a good argument when you get all lathered. I mean, like, if you're going to have one, you might as well go all out. 
Some people might call these, like we don't argue at our house. We have intense moments of fellowship. We spiritualize it. The Lord had just spoken of his impending humiliation, but all they were worried about was their exaltation. Jesus had just said, I'm going to die. And all they could worry about is who was going to be the greatest. Jesus is talking about being humiliated. All they could talk about was who's going to be exalted. Verse 35, And he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Again, this posture, remember what I told you? Jesus is he's showing us how you make disciples. He's walking with them and he's talking to them. He's sitting down. This is the posture of teaching. And he says, if you want to be great, you, may, you must be last of all and servant of all. Notice what he says. He says, if, if you want, if you want to be great. Jesus does not condemn ambition, but defines it in terms of his kingdom. The word last, I love this word last, okay? Especially in the original language. It means to be the the farthest boundary of an area. Okay, so as far away on the boundary of an area that you could possibly be. You see, greatness in God's kingdom is found at the far end of where your sinful mind believes it to be. You can't achieve such a posture on your own. Self does not like to step down. This posture is not natural, supernatural, and can, and can be accomplished in no other way but through supernatural means. Not only do you have to be last of all, but notice what he says, you must be servant of all. In Jesus' day, a servant was somebody who waited tables, somebody who washed nasty, stinky, grimy feet. Jesus is teaching his disciples, that pride seeks a position, but servanthood takes a posture. Pride takes a position, but servanthood takes a posture. If you're a Christian this morning... Being a servant is not something we have to do, but it's something that we get to do. Being a servant is not something we have to do, even though it's commanded. It's something that we get to do. It's not something we have to do. It's something that we get to do. And it's something that we want to do. What about that three little word at the end of... Let me go back to the verse. There it is. Last of what? All? And servant of... We all believe in serving people... Just not all people. You can't say amen, you got to say ouch. 
However, we all have those people that we are unwilling to serve. Maybe it's that person we view as irresponsible. Well, I'm not going to serve them because all I'm going, all I'm doing is saying it's okay to be irresponsible. I, I told the, the, the life group this morning, here's, here's something that, boy, I, I tell you, I got really, and, and still am, and, and, and I know this is not going to be easy in my life because you're talking about something that goes, I mean, you're talking about something that goes totally against the grain of the way I'm wired up. I told the group this morning, what we like to do with the word all is make amendments. Yeah, you know what an amendment is? It's where you got a law and then you, you try to take, you, you create these amendments because you, you want to try to clarify some, some gray areas. What you're really trying to do is, you're, you're, with all, you're, you're saying all doesn't really mean all. All only means in these certain conditions. And what we try to do is we try to get too spiritual. Well, we don't, we don't need to uh, promote anybody's sinful behavior. Reckless living. Their self-righteousness. And what we need to realize this morning is, is that when Jesus tells us, if we're going to be a servant a true servant, then we've got to be last of everybody and a servant of everybody with no exceptions. If we'll, if we'll quit trying to redefine all and just let all be all, we'll be in a lot better position with Jesus. Now, I got one more phrase that I, w I want you to write down. There it is. Everybody should write that down in your Bible or somewhere. Put it in the notes of your phone. <laughs> you want to know how much of a, of a servant you are? Well, you won't know that until you get treated like one. You want to know how much of a servant you are. You won't know that until you're treated like one. You know and I know that nothing can set us off in the wrong direction more than to really be treated like a servant. You know what, you know what that means? Not be appreciated, not be applauded, not be acknowledged. It really means, look, if you're going to be a servant, here's what we've all got to come down to. You will be taken advantage of. Your kindness will be abused. You should not expect acknowledgement or appreciation or an attaboy or an girl. And look what Jesus does to close out the sermon this morning. 
And he took a child, and he put him in the midst. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Watch, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Can you dial in for about three minutes and hear the final, these final words? Jesus brings an illustration into the midst. And a child was the perfect example in Jesus' day of what he was talking about. Now, it ain't in our world today because children have been elevated to a position that in Jesus' culture, people would have, they, they could not believe. They, <laughs> you know that emoji that I've talked about where, where your head blows off? That's my favorite emoji to use now because that's the kind of way I feel like the world is. Every time I hear something, my head just wants to blow off. If, if Middle Eastern Jewish people got to spend one day in an American family with children, they would be, that's the way their head would be. Because they would be like, that is not how we treat kids in our culture. Children represented the absolute lowliest. A child was the perfect example of what it meant to be last. They didn't eat first, they ate last. And some of y'all grew up that way. Children represented those who exhaust us. Those who cannot pay us back. And those who cannot promote us. If you want to be great, you have to serve the people you want to serve the least. And children are the perfect illustration because they take and never give. Jesus is saying by placing this child in the middle, if you want to be great, you have to serve the people you want to serve the least. Now, he's not talking about children in particular. What he is talking about is all the limitations that children have. Jesus is not trying to be anti-child. He's just saying that, look, children are demanding. Children will suck the resources out of you. And give no resources back. When's the last time your kid paid for a happy meal? When was the last time your child said thank you for something that you did for them? I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but it's, it's quite... It's, it doesn't happen often. There is a Twitter feed that I follow called Honest Toddler. <laughs> It's, it's the sarcastic. And what it is, the guy that, or the person, I don't know if it's a guy or a girl, who does it? But they're, what they do is, is, is they tweet the thoughts of toddlers, if toddlers could talk. I love this one. This is my favorite one. Have you ever loved someone more than you loved yourself? Me neither. Me neither. If you want to be great, you have to serve the people you want to serve the least. And really, the people we want to serve the least are the people that we know won't appreciate. It's the people who won't acknowledge. 
It's the people who will take advantage. Those are the people we want to serve the least. But these are the people that Jesus is saying that if you're truly going to be my disciple, if you're truly going to be great in the kingdom of God, if you're truly going to be exalted, if you're truly going to be my disciples, this is the life that you must live. The motivate, listen, so what's the motivation? This is the end. The motivation for becoming this type of servant is, look what he says, you get to know me. You get to know God. The motivation for becoming this type of servant is you get to know God. Treat well those who have no standing in this world and you will receive an audience with God. The only reason you would want to become this type of servant is that God is your goal. The life of a servant is the path to greatness in the kingdom of God. Why? Because it was the pathway for Jesus. Let's end by reading a few verses, and then David's going to come and lead us in a final song. Look at these final verses. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now watch, here it goes. We're getting into it. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, Count others more significant than yourselves. Listen, humility is not thinking about yourself. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of what? God. Did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking on what? The form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Watch. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Paul paints the portrait of humility, but Peter presents the prize of humility. David, come on. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the weak. Now watch, humble under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, what will he do? What will he do? What will he do? Jesus is not against greatness. He tells us, go be great. But he tells us what greatness looks like. I want to leave you one last thought here. If Jesus is the goat, the greatest of all time, and he is, the one who was the goat, guess what he also, guess what other animal he was? The lamb. And if you're going to be great, you got to be like Jesus was.
you got to lay down your life. Greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. Are you serving everyone? Or are you only serving those who will acknowledge you, who will applaud you, who will give you an attaboy or girl? Are you the kind of person, are you the kind of servant who you're okay with serving as long as you don't get treated like a servant? Are some of you no longer serving because that's what happened? Somebody treated you like a servant? And you said, you know what? I'm not going to let anybody treat me that way. I'm not going to let anybody treat me in that way. I've given and sacrificed, and I've done this, and I've done that, and I could have been doing this for myself, and I could have been doing that for myself, or I could have been over here serving this person who would have really appreciated it and who would have really been grateful for what I've done. Listen, if that has been your attitude towards being a servant, listen, you have yet to serve one day in your life. At least in light of what Scripture says servanthood really is. Jesus is saying to His children this morning, I want you to be great. I want you to pursue greatness. But if you're going to be great in my kingdom, then you've got to be a servant of all. And why does Jesus want you to be great? Because Jesus says that if you humble yourself under my mighty hand, if you go, if you stoop to the to, to being a low servant, if you put others ahead of yourself, if you put yourself last and others first, then guess what? There will come a day where I will exalt you in due time. Listen, you may never get exalted on the earth, but I can tell you, those who live such a life, there is coming a day of exaltation, and it will be the day where both great and small stand before the throne of the kingdom of God. And God will look out, and He will say to you, those who have served in this manner, He will say, enter into your rest, you good and faithful servant. Father... You have put inside of us a desire to be great. Our problem is is that sin has rewired the circuitry. Sin has put a virus inside of our operating system. But yet you have come to to rewire the the, the wiring. You you've come to 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 be the uh, the the uh, to be the one that removes the virus. You are the antivirus software. You come to take out what sin has done. And you tell us, yes, be great. Because I want to exalt those who live for greatness. Because those who live to be great in my kingdom are those who live for others and not themselves. Those who humble themselves and and put others above them. It's those who run to, to be last and not first. Those who will gird themselves and, and serve the table. Those who will get down on their knees and with a basin of water and a towel, wash feet. Those are the ones you want to exalt because in exalting those, you exalt yourself. 
Because our world has no category for those kind of people. There's no way to explain those kind of people outside of the supernatural. So help us. Motivate us. Remind us that to pursue greatness is to pursue you. And help us to do that this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand and sing one more song together this morning.